Hello, I'm Jim White. Welcome to It's Friday, your guide to the best of arts, culture and entertainment available without leaving your armchair. You can find us on Spotify, Apple and Google and leave us a review. And don't forget to sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk. And in the fourth week of lockdown, on your television screen, the gangs of London will be doing their best to ensure we all stay safe at home. My father was taken from us on the streets of London. There's a time when nobody would have dared touch this family. Though if you want to self-isolate, it might be best not to do it in Amsterdam, as the new movie The Host suggests. Your brother is doing something for me, but it appears he has betrayed me. Plus, in an apocalyptic dystopian world, who better to cheer us up than a founder member of those happy funsters Radiohead? Ed O'Brien returns with a new album. But first, in an effort to demonstrate that we're all in this together, the world's celebrities have been queuing up to invite us into their lockdown life. In their Beverly Hills mansions and New York condos, they've been kindly telling us how to survive with only a swimming pool, an indoor gym and a home cinema to keep boredom at bay. We've heard from Arnold Schwarzenegger in his hot tub. I just finished a bike ride and a little bit of workout and I just, you know, keep staying at home away from the crowds and away from outside. The reason why I'm saying that is because I still see photographs and videos of people sitting in outside cafes all over the world and having a good time and hanging out in crowds. That is not wise. And Madonna being a top-notch COVID-idiot in her bath. That's the thing about COVID-19. It doesn't care about how rich you are, how famous you are, how funny you are, how smart you are. It's the great equalizer. And joining me to discuss which of the famous we should be paying attention to and who we should keep at a safe distance of several thousand miles, I'm delighted to say are Claudia Connell, the Daily Mail's television guru, and Brian Viner, the Mail's master of the cinema. Uh, Claudia, who for you is guilty of the worst bout of celebrity showing off? Oh, well, I'm, I'm going to single out Naomi Campbell. She's, she's launched... Yeah, I know. She's launched a, um, her own YouTube channel where she um, very modestly describes herself as a cultural innovator. And she's doing a series of, of um, interviews with her mates. She's calling them No Filter. I'm not exactly sure where the No Filter comes in because she's got a face full of makeup. <laughs> and she's talking to people like Christy Turlington, Nicole Richie, Mark Jacobs. Um, I watched one with uh, Cindy Crawford and it was just 40 minutes of them saying, oh, you're so wonderful. No, you're wonderful. Oh, my God, you're great. You're awesome. And it's oh, for goodness yeah. sake. They told me in New York when I got here at 16, Oh, you got to have plastic surgery. I'm like, my mother's like, absolutely not. She's not having wow. it. She's had it her whole life. If it cannot be covered with makeup, then it's not happening. So right. that was, it stayed. Well, and in a weird way, like, I feel like for me, so many women have beauty marks. And I think that when they saw me on the cover of Vogue or in a magazine with my beauty mark, 
it made them feel more comfortable about their own beauty marks and it right. made them remember me. It like became the thing that set me apart in a weird way. And I wrote about that yes, in my it's, book. It's, 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 it's a mark of identification. Uh, Claudia, uh, uh, purely for research, uh, I watched that one as well. And yeah. what, I thought was, what I thought was really interesting uh, was Naomi Campbell having this moralistic attack on plastic surgery while her <laughs> own face refused to move under any circumstances, which I thought was an interesting kind of uh, well, she's she's fifty. She's 50 very soon. So, yes, so there aren't many 50-year-olds who have absolutely no lines whatsoever, are they? But maybe she's lucky. Maybe she's just lucky. And <laughs> um, Brian, uh, who, who, who's been getting up your wick? Well, I, I have to say, and I know this is a bit controversial because... I think Claudia might be about to big him up. <laughs> Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger um, pops up in a... And he's made quite a few of these um, home kind of YouTube videos over the course of the, the coronavirus outbreak. And, and some of them are great. And I think I'm sure Claudia will talk about those. But there's one uh, recently he's, he's done where he's sitting in his jacuzzi smoking a huge cigar, a huge kind of Arnie cigar, telling us all to stay at home. And, I, and for me, that is just kind of symbolic of all those other Hollywood celebrities, and there have been quite a few of them, who, you know, sitting in their palatial mansions telling us that we have to stay at home, and we know we have to stay at home, but there's something incredibly irksome, I find, about them, you know, with it in their Beverly Hills mansions <laughs> saying, and, and especially in this one, for some reason, Arnie, and I know it's sort of part of his image and all that, but, you know, sitting in the absolute lap of luxury, this kind of decadent scene of him, with his shades on and uh, smoking this enormous cigar, saying, I just finished the bike ride and a little bit of workout, he says. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then says, you know, you've all got to stay at home if you work, you know, otherwise you're going to... Um, you're Claudia, and, uh, Claudia you know, leap yeah. to his defence. Poor little Arnie. He needs, you know, he's a frail individual. He needs a bit of help. Well, I think he's a movie star. I mean, I don't want to see him in a caravan with a cup of soup. I want to see him in a in a in a hot tub. And his his videos that he's doing. He's got these two donkeys called uh, Whiskey and Lulu that actually seem to spend most of the time in his house. They eat off the table with him. And those he's doing videos with them on an almost daily basis. And like, he's getting about five million viewers for them and they're they're really really entertaining Mula loves carrots whiskey loves carrots i just had my little bit of vegan food oh that was yummy huh oh see that's what we do we don't go out we don't go to restaurants we don't do anything like that anymore here we just eat with whiskey and with lulu we have a good time we get entertained look at that beautiful smile she has huh oh yes so, Brian, who do you like? Who's getting it right for you? Well, I, well surprisingly, um, Kate Winslet, actually, because I don't always love her when she steps out of her... I mean, I think she's a wonderful actress, but I haven't always loved her when she's kind of been herself and that kind of faux humility thing she used to do when receiving awards for, for many years, which Olivia Coleman seems to have uh, taken that kind of mantle now. But um, she, does this, she does this video where she tells us uh, she reminds us that she played an epidemiologist in the in the movie Contagion, which we talked about a few weeks ago, which is remarkably prescient in terms of what we're going through now. And she basically is just telling us that we need to wash our hands. And again, that's something that we already know. But she's doing it with a little bit of authority because she did a lot of preparation for that part. And she was taught by scientists, you know, that you have to, in her words, wash your hands like your life depends on it. The way soap works is that one end of the soap molecule binds with the water and the other end binds to the grease on your hands. 
the virus is washed away with that grease when the soap molecule attaches to it. Yep, yep. A scientist taught me that. You know, whereas uh, watching Arnie telling us to stay at home, I didn't learn anything I didn't already know. Watching this, watching her talking to us, talking direct to camera in her bathroom, not in a hot tub like <laughs> Arnie or, or Madonna in her bath, you know. I, actually, it's really useful and really good and good on her, you know, and she's taken the trouble to do it and she's sharing with us what she'd learnt when she made the movie and I, I, I think it's great. I noticed that Matt Damon, who was her co-star in uh, Contagion, is stuck in Ireland. Yeah, he was filming a movie there and President Trump stopped all flights back from Europe and um, so he's been in Ireland uh, under self-isolation. Um, uh, yeah, everyone's everyone enjoying the fact that they can see Matt Damon running around this, uh, the, the yeah. back streets of Ireland. This may be showing my age, actually, but the person I've quite enjoyed, uh, Claudia, is uh, it's Gary Barlow, who's been doing yeah. some... Um, yeah. I'm really, he's doing what he's calling the crooner sessions and he's uploading videos of himself performing duets via video link with various celebrities. I think he's done about 25 so far. You can watch them on his Instagram uh, page or you can watch, he's got a YouTube channel as well. And they're really good because they're, they're, Three minutes, there's no chat, there's no backslapping, unlike Naomi, just straight to the song. There's he did one with Ronan Keating, which was really good. Baby, can I hold you tonight? And maybe if I told you the right word, oh, at the right time, you'd be mine. Did one with Jason Donovan, not so good. Poor old Jason. He did, he sang too many broken hearts, but unfortunately his voice hasn't really stood the test of time. So. <laughs> broken voice. Oh, my word, uh, Brian, we have come to something where Gary Barlow is is our main man, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we're clinging to Gary Barlow for comfort. I think the truth of it is that some, a bit like in the, you know, people keep drawing a parallel with the second world war which is a bit glib but the truth of it is that some if you call this a coronavirus war then some celebrities are having a very good war and some and some are having a very bad one i think the ones who are having a bad one are those who are using it to boost their own image and boost their own popularity and uh, you know that's you can sort of tell really uh, like naomi campbell and uh, and some aren't you know some are some are just trying to do the right thing I don't know if you saw it, but my favourite uh, thing, I'm not sure if he counts as a celebrity, uh, but the BBC weatherman, Owen Evans, um, who completed his weather forecast and then dashed to a set of drums in his front window and beat out a magnificent row in accompaniment to the BBC news theme. Well worth checking out. Doesn't count as a celebrity, perhaps a weatherman, uh, but he really cheered me up. That's the forecast. Stay safe and I'll see you soon. <laughs> Fabulous. He will be a celebrity by the end of all this. Simon Cowell will be signing him up, won't he? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Claudia. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. Some of you will remember this week's guest as a delightful television presence of their childhood when she presented Blue Peter in the 1980s. Subsequently, we've all enjoyed her regular appearances in shows like The Right Stuff, Celebrity Masterchef and Loose Women. 
Exuding as she does a real warmth and generosity of spirit, Janet Ellis's smile is one of the most welcome sights on the small screen. But this is a woman with another side to her. After recently taking to her keyboard, she's the author of two challenging, bracing, at times rather dark novels, The Butcher's Hook and How It Was, which has just been released in paperback. Now, Janet, this book opens with a cheery scene of a woman sitting by the bedside of her dying husband. Well, it's a it's a device, really, and it's um, despite I'm sure people know my circumstances. My husband John has secondary lung cancer, but actually, I started work on this book, and particularly the sections where Marion Deacon, my heroine, is sitting by her husband's bedside before his diagnosis, and so that isn't actually based on him. Um, of course, it would be uh, impossible to separate out what was going on in my head at the same time as I was writing it. But I was keen to explore the idea that with older people, particularly I like to think older women, they they are often um, they often are accused or they they, they self identify as being invisible in that you can't really tell who they are. And I I chose to see that as the kind of superpower really that Marion has chosen to retreat from the world and not reveal too much of herself. And she's looking back while Michael, she knows he's dying. She's, she's looking back over her life, particularly um, a time in the 1970s when living in rural Kent, she began a, what turned out to be a disastrous affair, which was prompted by the realisation that the man she was involved with was also uh, in some way involved with her teenage daughter. But it was about that chosen invisibility, about you cannot tell who people are when you look at them. And about that generation of women who, you know, they're, they're just at the sort of tail end of, of some seismic episodes, you know, women's liberation and the whole sexual revolution. But but living where Marion does and in the way that she does, you know, she doesn't work, she's dependent on her husband. They feel the obviously the outward ripples of all this, but they can they cannot influence it or be influenced by it at all. So you said that the the story is not your husband John's story uh, with the cancer. Is yeah. Marion in any way your story? <laughs> well, as Marion behaves extremely badly, particularly towards her teenage daughter, and because I do, I've got three children, two of them are girls. I'm aware that every time I say, "Oh, she's not me," it begins to sound <laughs> slightly weaker. But it isn't me. I mean. The, the great thing about writing anything at all is that you can step into another world. You can go alongside the life you've been living and explore and experience somebody else's. And in my case, I think I choose to, to explore and experience the more terrible aspects of human nature. You know, I, I take people as far as they possibly can go. Then I throw them somewhere else as well and see how they deal with that. So you can say that again, Janet. <laughs> Here you are. We all know you as this lovely television <laughs> presence. There you were on Blue Peter showing us how to make our Christmas decorations <laughs> when we were kids and so on. Butcher's Hook, your first novel. My word, that's dark. That is dark and nasty. Where did that come from, Janet? Well, well again, you know, the heroine of that, Anne Jacob, is, is living a very restricted life. You know, she's she's the daughter of a well-to-do father, but her life, in, in it's set in 1763, would have been very prescribed by, you know, her, her parents choosing who she was going to marry. And she falls in love with entirely the wrong person, the very low-born butcher's boy. And because she's a smart girl, but has no particular moral compass, she decides to get to him come what may so yes there's a certain amount of um well somebody very early on said to me what's what's the butcher's hook about you know very, very briefly describe it and i said well it's kind of about 
sex, death, and meat. So, <laughs> but again, it's about don't we all do this? Just sort of think, you know, what, what's the what, what would it feel like to be the worst version of yourself? What would it feel like to actually act on those impulses? Which I hope I'm not hostage to fortune too much by saying this that we all have. And then, what does it feel like when you can let your imagination go as far as you possibly let it? And I think, you know, in reference to, you know, earlier careers and you know, doing Blue Peter, which I absolutely loved, I think having left a, a considerable gap for all sorts of reasons um, between doing that and writing, I didn't feel that I was going to disappoint or worry anyone. You know, the, the kids <laughs> who watched me are all old enough now, I think, to cope. But they they can cope that, with this change. <laughs> However, you you know you are still a frequent presence on our screens. We've seen you, MasterChef. What a what a brilliant performance that was! <laughs> uh, were you always a good cook? Well, I'm, I'm very greedy. So uh, the person I cook for really is me. I've never really understood those people who go, oh, you know, I made a dinner party or whatever. You know, I made supper and couldn't really taste it, you know, because I thought, no, 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 I'm the I'm the one. I am the one I cook for. And I've always really enjoyed it. And I luckily have carried on enjoying it past doing ill-advised cookery in front of people on television because stop me if we ever get the chance to do this again. If it's ever offered to me, please remind me that I said I would never do it again because there is honestly nothing as stressful as cooking in front of a camera you, you became a public figure quite early on with with blue peter you then had the opportunity to look at it from another angle when your daughter uh, sophie ellis bexter became uh, an international yeah. superstar well were you worried were you did you tell her stuff that she should avoid were you a useful guide <laughs> Uh, if I was, it's inadvertent. I mean, several reasons, really. First of all, she went into an industry that I don't know anything about. You know, the music industry is very, very different. And I could only offer her advice on the things that crossed over, which was, you know, keep in your own head with this. You know, you'll be told things from outside that may make you feel better or worse about yourself. But actually, they can't really influence, you know, the person you were before all that happened is the person you have to stay because, like I say, you have to live with it inside your head. And Sophie is remarkably good at that, I have to say. And also, don't don't be influenced by other people's definition of you because they're very keen usually, especially in the music industry, to offer up who they think you are and then interfere with it or criticise it or even want you to enhance and praise it and and it's very difficult to keep all that going so that's that's the first thing and secondly sophie started pretty young you know she 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 didn't take up a university place she went on the road as one of the um nme new discoveries instead but i wasn't i wasn't worried about her because she's a she's a smart girl who likes being around her family and her friends and i thought Whatever experiences she has, you know, I can support her through the ones that aren't as great and hopefully celebrate with her the ones that are, that are. But she's still going to be getting an awful lot out of this. And also, because she started so young, I thought she can always write that off to experience and do something else. And then here we are 20 years later, and, and luckily she isn't doing something else. She's doing what she does. Uh, and when you're at, uh, when you're at a, uh, an event, you know, somebody's wedding or something, a murder on the dance floor comes <laughs> on the disco, are you the first up there dancing? Well, I, I am, as long as members of my family aren't around, because obviously the, the family veto <laughs> that uh, <laughs> I'm sure operates for most people. But actually, funny enough, we, we had a karaoke party a few years ago, and... Uh, Sophie and her family came and somebody you know with a few knowing nudges and winks and everything put murder on the dance floor on and I tell you the first person up to sing along to it was Sophie and, <laughs> and I can tell you that 
I'd sort of suspected this anyway, but everybody sounds rubbish through a karaoke mic. Everybody. <laughs> We've had it proved. <laughs> really. <laughs> uh, now, listen, uh, we're all uh, locked down at the moment, so we're all mm-hmm. kind of leading the novelist's life. Uh, have you found that actually being in enforced lockdown and actually having to sit and look at your screen every day has been productive as a novelist? Oh, I wish I could say it was. I think I'm resetting a bit, actually, to be honest, because I've started book three. And when all this first, you know, it's been happening in, in very fast, it's like being on a terrible sort of roller coaster, isn't it? Just when you think you're at a smooth bit, it drops you down somewhere else. So I've been opening up my book every day and looking at it. And sometimes I just think, oh, good grief. But what I'm comforted by, and it's a really tiny thing, but it matters to me, is that every time I do, I spot something in what I've already written that I want to improve on. And I think so long as I've still got that happening, because I tend to edit as I go quite a lot anyway. I mean, obviously, I'm still on first draft here, but I, t- I tend to go back and have a look and think that, that that's, doesn't sound right. And while some novelists I know gallop through to the end and then work on, you know, go back and work very slowly through it, I do a bit of both. So I'm trying to advance the story, but I'm also aware that I want to go back and just, just polish it a bit. Just give us one tip as somebody who does spend a lot of time you're a very sociable person we see you on the tv giving your advice giving uh, (laughs) see you cooking we see you doing lots of things but you do spend a lot of time on your own so what tip would you give us for this time well you know it's it's kind of a, a weird one and i hope it doesn't sound odd but i think actually spend a couple of moments a day just just looking at yourself i mean literally looking at yourself because you know, you, you, there will be a mirror somewhere. And I think it's really important to remind yourself of who you are. You know, we, we live a lot in our heads. We live a lot, you know, when, when you're with a friend, you're not constantly thinking, how do I look? Or at least I don't think you are. But I think it's important to remind yourself that you do still exist, that that can't change. You know, you are still important and you still matter. You matter first and foremost to yourself and then in outward circles to everybody around you if you're lucky enough to be involved with a few people who might care and I think we all are you know I think there are very few of us for whom there is nothing and no one but certainly for for the people I know I think it's important just to connect a little moment with who you're going to be that day and we are getting through this hour by hour and day by day and I think those moments of almost self-meditation and self-acknowledgement feel very important. That's brilliant. Thanks so much for joining us, Janet. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Now it's time for Hits and Misses, where the Daily Mail's writers put the week's new releases under their microscope and deliver their critical findings. First up, the Daily Mail's film man, Brian Viner. What have you got for us this week, Brian? Well, Jim, um, there's a film called Who You Think I Am, which is um, French language, so it's not very good for us playing clips on, really, unless there are lots of French speakers out there. <laughs> but um, um, And Who You Think I Am is not a, not a wonderful title in English. I think it works better in French. It sounds a little bit like a sort of companion piece to, to, to that TV thing, Who Do You Think You Are, you know. But, um, but anyway, it's very good. It's, um, it's, a, it's, a, thrill, it's a sort of a, an erotic thriller, if you like, um, and also a sort of psychological thriller. It stars Juliette Binoche, who's a woman of a certain age. She's divorced. She's a literature professor. She has two sons. Um, and she's having an affair with a much younger man who, at the beginning of the film, dumps her. Uh, and she's terribly distraught about this. Um, and she, she phones him to try and speak to him. And the phone is answered by his flatmate. 
And she then sort of concocts this way of hooking the flatmate, which she does online, uh, by and speaks to him sort of via email. And, and there's a whole online kind of virtual affair begins to start between them. Um, and, and that builds and builds. And he wants to see what she looks like, so she sends her a picture of her very uh, attractive young niece who's only 24. So uh, she's pretending to be 24. And, and this all kind of builds and builds and builds to a... To a to a to a very dramatic climax, but it's um it's really good. It's really good. She's brilliant, of course, Juliette Binoche. She's wonderful in this film, um, and it's uh, you know she she. I mean, I have to say, she's what fifty, in her, certainly in her mid to late fifties, fifty six, fifty seven. I think uh, she looks great, but uh, in the context of this film, she's supposed to be a you know she's the older woman, and and it says some very interesting things about the the whole online dating thing. You know the where. And we read about it in our papers, don't we? Where you know the, the sort of these sinister stories about men pretending to be younger so they can mm. girls and so on. So it sort of touches on all of that, but of course the, it's it's flipped on its head, you know, because it's a it's a woman ensnaring a man. Um, I just really really liked this, and even even if you don't kind of care much for labouring through subtitles, this is very much worth seeing, and it's available on Curzon Home Cinema. So you're giving that. So uh, it is. It is. It's yeah. It's a. It's a hit, definitely. Quite right with Juliet Binoche. Yes, it's, you, it's you, you've you've got to go there. Um, anything else available to um, for us to subscribe to this week? There, there are various uh, streaming platforms have a film up called The Host, um, and there's sort of a link. It's an, this is English language, um, so we can play a clip, and we will in a, in a minute, I think. But. Um, um, but unfortunately, it's a pretty poor film, uh, even though it has Derek Jacobi, who is always wonderful, in a very small role playing a sort of psychologist. Um, and it's about, a, um, it's about a, ba- a young banker in London who's this sort of hapless, bit of a loser, uh, has lost lots of money gambling. Uh, he's having an affair with his boss's wife, but she says unless he can sort of pull himself together and, and rise a bit higher up the ladder and sort of give her the treatment to which she's become accustomed, you know, she, she's going to dump him. So he's kind of desperate uh, and he steals some money um, and he goes and gambles it away. Uh, I'll tell you what, let's listen to a clip. Hi. Come in. This place is amazing. Oh, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. This is your room. If you need anything, I'll be upstairs. Thank you. Uh, sorry, Miss. Please. Call me Vera. Your brother is doing something for me, but it appears he has betrayed me. Tomorrow, I want you to take a flight to Amsterdam. If you don't come back with your brother and my property, I'll be hanged a visit to your wife and kids. So he gambles his money away, and he's in a casino which is entirely populated, it seems to me, by Chinese gangsters. They're just <laughs> everywhere. Uh, and they um, and he's kind of taken to one side and he's lost his he's lost the 50 grand that he's just stolen um, and they say well they'll settle his debts but he's got to be a mule for them on a on a sort of heroin smuggling trip to Amsterdam which whisks him off to Amsterdam and you think you've sort of got the measure of the film at this point um, it's very much uh, it's very much like someone it obviously owes a big debt to to Hitchcock's masterpiece Psycho but you know, it's, it is the palest of pale shadows of Psycho because 
what then happens is he gets to Amsterdam. You think you've got the measure of it. You think it's a sort of drug smuggling kind of gangster type film. And then he gets lured into this terrible kind of torture den. And then it becomes, then it just loses itself in sort of torture porn, as it's called. Uh, and um, yes, it's it's very poor. You're not selling this to me, Brian. I'm afraid uh, it's it, all missed. Then, it, 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 yeah, the the acting's poor. The writing's poor. Uh, there's a, a guy called D- Dougie Pointer who was in the band McFly. You might remember. Uh, who I'm slightly well disposed to because my daughter used to love them. But uh, the acting, it has to be said, is not great. Um, and the whole thing doesn't really work. And I'm afraid it's a miss. Now I'm joined by the male's music critic, Adrian Thrills. Adrian, music is the absolute lifeline in lockdown. Uh, what new releases have you found to keep us all buoyant? Yeah, so new releases this week. There's a couple of interesting ones. The uh, the first is the it's the debut solo album by Ed O'Brien, who is uh, probably best known as his, his Radiohead's other guitarist, the one that isn't Johnny Greenwood. And um, I mean, Radiohead, you know, one of one of the classic British bands of the last. 25 years and um i think ed's role in the band actually it's kind of sometimes um underestimated i mean you've got sort of the uh, kind of enigmatic tom york and then the explosive aggressive johnny greenwood who are the kind of always two main figures in the band and ed cuts a slightly serene figure next to those two but he he over the years he's added a lot to the band and he's he's the george harrison to uh, to the other two lennon mccartney and he adds some of the kind of softer edges but also he he's the guy that sings all those amazing high-pitched harmonies you get on on tracks like um you know some of the kind of classic tracks that paranoid android off um okay computer he's one of the one of the last of the radiohead guys out of the blocks with a bit of solo album and um he's he's done it under the under the alias eob ed o'brien and it's called earth and uh, it's, it's an interesting record i mean radiohead for all their brilliance they sometimes come across in their kind of public faces slightly peevish band and um you know they don't play many of the, the songs people want to hear when they play live and uh, you know that they're kind of sometimes willfully cryptic but i think this isn't something you could level at this record i think ed he's a very open warm-hearted individual and you know the record it's got some dance tracks got some nice kind of folky songs there's a lovely duet with laura marling and he's actually a really talented singer i think we're going to listen to a song called shangri-la had a very successful solo career and uh, Johnny Greenwood has done uh, movie scores, that kind of thing. Do you think Ed O'Brien's got a, a real future after this as a, on his own? Well, I think the thing with Ed is he, I think he's dipping his toe in the water with this record and I think there's some really interesting ideas that haven't quite uh, come to fruition, but he's speaking about this as the first of a trilogy. And I think, I think as he finds his feet as a solo performer, he, he'll, he's capable of, I mean, it's a, it's a very good first attempt, I think. And that song Shangri-La was, um, 
it's inspired by the infamous all night stage at Glastonbury and uh, I quite like it it's got some great beats it kind of reminds me a bit of some of Talking Heads more experimental stuff and I mean I think he's he's a he's a real talent and I think unlike some guitarists who make solo records the, you know the guy can actually sing which is is something that obviously helps when you're going to be you know launching a solo career so I, I think there is definitely uh, some some wings in his solo venture so hit or miss uh, Adrian? It, it, it's a hit and what else have you got for us so uh, so from a completely different uh, neck of the woods i've got the uh, the fifth album by a, a singer an american singer called katie crutchfield or as she as she's better known waxahatchee which is um, <laughs> that is some name it is yeah she's she's got a thing about names actually she's come up with a, with a, a couple of good ones she used to be in a in a punk band with her twin sister by the name of ps elliot but um her, her solo project is, is Waxahachie, which is named after a, a creek behind her childhood home in Bur- Birmingham, Alabama. And she's an, in, she's an interesting artist who, who's kind of not not that much, not widely known, but in a way she's developed a cult following over the last eight years, starting out with um, a kind of very kind of lo-fi punky grungy sounds and but with this record and the the new one called saint cloud she's she's dipped her toe into into the country music that she probably grew up with as a child and it's a nice kind of mix of of kind of jangling indie guitars with a, a slightly kind of southern country feel to it and um she's a really good songwriter her lyrics they're quite confessional but she also she's got a very kind of a great sort of meticulous way with crafting songs it reminds me a bit of lucinda williams or even dare i say it, dylan in the way she she puts her songs together and uh, the album saint cloud it was written as 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 she kind of addressed some of her inner demons and and battled to get to get sober after um falling off the wagon somewhat on her last world tour but she's she's clean and sober now and she wrote this album as she kind of addressed her her kind of personal demons and it, it's got some really nice songs on it i think we're going to hear one called can't do much one of the uh, one of the most interesting new albums i've, I've heard you know since uh, since the lockdown started and it's uh, kind of an unfamiliar name but i think someone we may be hearing um a little bit a little bit more of over the next Re- few months. remind me of that name agent remind me of that it's name. waxahatchee waxahatchee uh, so for you a hit or a miss yeah it's it's definitely a hit brilliant thank you for waxing lyrical about yes. waxahatchee <laughs> And finally, Claudia Connell, the Daily Mail's television writer. Um, Claudia, your recommendation last week of Quiz was absolutely spot oh, it's, on. It's, it's My just, word, it was riveting. Everyone brilliant. has been talking about it. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know if you saw on Twitter, even Chris Tarrant's own son, Toby, tweeted about about just how uncanny like Michael Sheen's ability is to, to, to mimic people. And he, 
Yeah, even he was saying he, you know, he thought he was watching his dad. Uh, but I noticed um, that uh, that there is a the Ingrams themselves have kind of used it as a launch pad to try and clear their names because I thought it was very equivocal about where it stood, um, about their guilt or innocence, didn't you? Yes, it, it was quite sympathetic towards them. And, yeah, a lot of people, especially after the last episode, were saying, well, maybe they were innocent. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not well, convinced. anyway, Claudia, <laughs> have you got anything to match that this week? No, there's, no, there's nothing quite as good as that. There's, a, there's um, a new drama that's starting on Sky Atlantic on Thursday called Gangs of London. Um, it's, it's, it's about one of London's biggest drug lords who is played by Colm Meany in it, and he's murdered. And uh, the programme is about the power struggle that it leads to as the, his rivals, particularly an Albanian crime family, try and make a move on his turf. And then the second strand of the drama is trying to identify who ordered the hit on the drug lord. Was it a rival? Was it maybe even a member of his own family? Um, I think we have a little clip here. I'm going to make things right, Mum. Sean Wallace himself tasking me to find a guy who killed his father. We are making enemies out of business partners. We've got to find a peaceful solution to this. I'm not interested in peace. And, and does it work? For well, it, it, it opens with a, um, a man being dangled off a high-rise building. Um, and I've, I've got to say the violence throughout just doesn't let up. It's really quite stomach churning. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who accepts that you have to have a certain level of violence in some dramas, especially ones like this, where it's about gangsters. But, you know, the body count was off the scale. You can hear necks, lap and things like that. And it was just, I found the violence just a bit too much. Um, that said, it's an original British drama. There's a great cast. Um, Joe Cole, people might remember him from uh, Peaky Blinders. He plays the son of the murdered gangster he's very good he's very chilling so i i, I did enjoy it it's the first, the opening episode is 90 minutes long so it's, it's it's quite a long one and then they go down to to an hour so hit or miss for you i'm gonna say that it's a hit and, and what else is uh, is trying to fill that void left by the quiz well i'm um, I don't know about you, Jim, but everyone that I know is talking about how much they're eating, how they just can't stop eating and how they're putting on weight. Um, and so on Monday, there's a Horizon special on BBC Two called The Restaurant That Burns Calories. It's an experiment where a restaurant is set up with um, Fred Syriac, the maitre d' from the first dates. He's at the front of house. And at the back of the restaurant is a fully equipped gym that's overseen by Dr. Zoe Williams. And the diners don't know about that. 25 fitness fanatics are in the gym and they have to burn off the calories consumed by the diners um, the logic is that we obviously we all eat too much especially right now and a study found that um when people were told how much exercise they had to do to burn off their food choices you know like 100 minutes on a treadmill to burn off a burger and fries for example then they make healthier choices i mean let's should we, should we listen to a little clip welcome to our restaurant with a difference we are inviting 20 hungry diners to lunch right here. The tables are set, the kitchen is ready, and the menus are printed. So far, so ordinary, yes? No. Because there's nothing ordinary about this restaurant. Just meters away, we've installed a secret, fully functioning gym. We have 25 fitness fanatics already warming up, and they are going to burn off every single in our restaurant today. Nothing like this has ever been done before. 
We are going to all this trouble because the latest scientific research indicates that if we are shown how much exercise it takes to burn off the calories we consume, what? we'll eat less. The diners are dining, but they're not actually doing the exercise. So no, so they're, they're, that work, they're, they're in a sort of a bistro setting. They think they're there for some other experiments. They're choosing what they would normally choose. So they're having starters, main courses, puddings. They're having alcohol as well. And then meanwhile, all the calories are being totted up. And the, the, the poor old soul, sweaty souls in the gym behind then have to burn off their calories. <laughs> so what are they eating? <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, do you, do you think as a as a kind of um, a, a way of indicating better healthy eating, it works? It, it was quite shocking. I mean, but I think once you get over the oh my god, fifty five minutes on a rowing machine to burn off my calamari starter, it, <laughs> it gets a little bit boring. There's lots of padding uh, with various talking to various experts about you know sort of calories and um, but it's. Um, the thing is that what they want to do is they, they're saying that restaurants, a lot of restaurants now list how many calories are in a dish. And they're, they're sort of saying that if they listed, they showed in graphics just what you'd have to do to exercise it off. That might make, make people choose a bit more wisely. But I think I don't want that in a restaurant. I don't want to see <laughs> pictures of people rowing and doing star jumps <laughs> next to my fish and chips. So uh, for you, hit or miss, then, I'm going to say that this was a miss. Now you know what would make you renew your subscription to Spotify and what should be left out with the recycling. My thanks to Brian, Claudia and Adrian. Now, over in New York City, Jackie Stephen, the male's own 24-hour party person, has been obliged to keep herself to herself for the past few weeks. No more celebrity parties, no more champagne openings, no more selfies with the stars. Uh, so what's been occupying your time instead this week, Jackie? Well, it's uh, mainly me. I, I didn't realise how entertaining I was, actually, <laughs> until I spent all this time by myself. <laughs> One of the things that we're watching all every day over here is the daily broadcast from uh, the New York Governor, Andrew Cuomo. And he's a very good-looking guy, very charismatic. He is just the voice of calm that you need in a crisis, unlike our president. So it becomes a kind of daily meditation that we watch him and he reassures us. And uh, naturally, I'm already worried in case after all this, what if I get together with him? What if he runs for president? What if I become first lady? I'll have to wear makeup every day. What if he's then assassinated and I've got to go to the funeral? Oh, I have to arrange the funeral. See, sometimes I think I overthink things. Yeah, just, yeah, maybe you are getting slightly ahead of yourself uh, there. <laughs> um, I, how, is he, how is he sort of, you know, are people starting to think, because he has been so good in this crisis, he might make a, um, a, a, a presidential possibility. Oh, yes. People are shouting for it. He was going to run a few years back. He's too late for November because, you know, Democratic person's been chosen now and he is a Democrat. But certainly possibly next time round. But he came out with a ruling yesterday that we all have to wear masks now outside uh, from Saturday. Now, this isn't great for me because I do have a thing called mask uh, which is ah. a genuine fear of masks. So this isn't a great time for me. And one of the things I learned about this, that it's also related to automatonophobia or automat automatonphobia. Automatophobia. Oh, that? That's a fear of humanoid figures. Uh, now, you see, I've always had this thing that I can't be near anything with its face covered or disguised in any way. It's the same as... Um, 
what's the one for clowns? Colorphobia. Oh, oh yeah. It's called. Uh, so anything with its face covered, I can't do. Uh, I have worry about talking to people with beards. I actually can't do it. I can't be too close to a man with a beard and a woman with a beard. And trust me, there are a few of those around. I definitely can't talk to them. I think that the masks, when lockdown is released, I think we're all going to be wearing masks. So that suggests you're going to be still locked down then, Jackie. Actually, the deaths went up again after they said that they plateaued. Uh, so, unfortunately, it's, it's you know, not doing anything fast. They've, they've gone up in Spain again as well. Uh, one of the other things that uh, Andrew's doing, he's got a brother called Chris from CNN, and they've become like the Lauren Hardy of the airwaves. Uh, Chris and he are very, very funny, but Chris had the virus, so he was off work. And it's just very, very entertaining. But now, sadly, his wife has the virus, and uh, so we all wish her well. Uh, now, you mentioned Cuomo as being a contrast um, to the president, but you must have enjoyed his press conference uh, during the week where he went off on probably the most childish tantrum we've ever seen from a, a serving politician. Oh, absolutely. I've, I've had to stop watching him now because he drives me nuts so much. He is so irresponsible. To pull funding from the WHO at a time like this is just insane. No matter what you think of that organisation, it's still awful to do it at this time. And he just comes up with some new hair-brain scheme day after day. And I think that he's very frustrated. You know, he's a very impatient man. And the one thing you don't want in charge of a country at this time is an impatient man. He thinks that the president has say over everything, that he's in total control. He is behaving like a dictator. And we have states and governors precisely so that we don't have that kind of situation. But he just doesn't see it. That's a problem when you have a narcissist running a country. Uh, indeed, Jackie, but you will be back. Please tell me you will, with, a, with or without a mask, you'll be back prowling the celebrity circuit before long. Please tell <laughs> well, me. Well, I hope so, because it's becoming very, very strange here. But I am entertaining myself in my kitchen, doing my YouTube channel, and I'm discovering lots of interesting things. Like this week, I didn't know, you know, that oysters make pills when they're sick. Really? Uh, it's a protection thing, yeah. So when they've got grit or anything, they create these sort of little bubbly things that then become oysters. So maybe in this pandemic, we'll all end up, through the vaccine or whatever, creating valuable jewels. And I imagine, uh, Jackie, that you have been eating nothing but oysters. Have you found any pearls in them when you've been I eating I don't them? actually eat oysters. Uh, I ah. used to, but uh, they're very, very bad for you. Probably because I used to choke on the pearls, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm not crazy on them. I always feel that it's like eating body parts. So I always cover them in, uh, well, I used to cover them in lots of things like Tabasco and pepper and lemon and red onion vinegar. And it got me to the stage of thinking, why don't I just get rid of the oyster and just have the shell full of the liquid? Oh, that, that sounds like a recipe, um, probably for disaster. But thanks very <laughs> much, Jackie. Okay, good to talk to you. Stay safe. And that's it from It's Friday. We'll be back next week and every week via Spotify, Apple and Google. Don't forget to sign up to your daily briefing from mailplus.co.uk. And if you'd like to drop us a line, we're on It's Friday at mailplus.co.uk. Until next week, I'm Jim White. Stay safe.